Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Shankar Nair's new book, Translating Wisdom, Hindu-Muslim Intellectual Interactions in Early Modern South Asia, is an intellectually daring and dazzlingly imaginative study of scholarly interactions made visible through translation between Sanskrit and Arabo-Persian philosophical traditions in pre-modern South Asia. Centered on the 16th century Persian translation, Jug Basisht, of the major and multifaceted 10th century Sanskrit text, the Lago Yoga Vasishtha, Nair details and explicates the philological, philosophical, and theological mechanisms and operations that go into an interreligious translation enterprise of this sort, shifting seam- seamlessly between Sanskrit, Arabic, and Persian. Nair demonstrates that a close reading of the pre-modern archive can simultaneously disrupt nationalist historiographies while also refusing to secularize that archive in the process. He also convincingly makes a case for approaching and benefiting from the theological discourses and imagination of pre-modern actors, such as the scholars involved in or connected to this translation project, as not only data to be theorized, but properly theoretical in their own right. Translating Wisdom is among those rare books that combine the textual finesse of meticulous philology with razor-sharp theoretical awareness and nuance. Here now is my conversation with Professor Shankar Nair. Hello, Shankar. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for making the time, Sir. Thank you so much, Shankar, for being on the New Books Network on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, Before we get to discussing this incredible book, uh, Shankar, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, as you might be aware, that our first question is uh, biographical. Uh, could you share a bit with our listeners your journey of a how you became a scholar of Islam of South Asia, and then how you got to writing this particular book? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think my parents ask the same thing every day. Uh, <laughs> why didn't he go into engineering? Uh, no, no. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't raised terribly religiously. Um, I didn't know much about religion growing up. Um, and maybe because of that absence, I suppose, in, in high school, I suddenly started to become intensely interested in, in anything and everything um, religion. So I um, started reading any book, any tradition, whatever I could get my hands on, you know, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, what have you. Um, and uh, ironically, perhaps, in retrospect, um, the one tradition that, that just didn't interest me at all at that time was uh, Islam. Um, maybe, maybe I read the wrong book, I don't know, but uh, just, just not interested. Uh, it, it didn't take. 
Um, so then when I started uh, uh, college, uh, undergrad, um, I wanted to keep studying religion. At that time, I thought just uh, as, a, as a hobby, as a side interest, uh, like most South Asians, I thought I'd do medicine or engineering at first. But um, because of that interest, you know, I realized you can't feasibly study everything. You got to pick something. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll stick with, uh, I'll study Hinduism and ostensibly uh, the tradition that, that, you know, my, my family comes from, um, even though I didn't know much. So very, very fortunately, I started taking Sanskrit uh, from that very first semester of college, which turned out to be a, a wonderful um, accident in, in retrospect. It got me started on Sanskrit early, um, which was huge for, for being able to make this book possible, um, ultimately. Um, so I was studying uh, Sanskrit, uh, eventually gathered up the courage to major in religious studies and South Asian studies. Um, along the way, you have to take you know, uh, courses in other religions. So, uh, you know, I took a course on South Asian Islam with uh, Ali Asani at Harvard. And um, there I saw, you know, a whole other history. I didn't know anything about South Asian Islam. I didn't know anything about Hindu-Muslim interactions. I didn't know anything about you know, this vibrant uh, you know, centuries of, of cross-fertilizations and cross-pollinizations. And to my naive mind at that time, you know, my thoughts have matured considerably since then, but, you know, to my, to my sort of novice mind at that time, some of this South Asian Sufi poetry and philosophy I was reading, it, it sounded just like, you know, Vedanta or Hindu philosophy that, that I'd been studying for some years by that point. Um, so this interested me, um, both sort of, you know, personally, because, you know, um, understanding Hinduism and Islam and, and, and the history of South Asia meant, meant a lot to me and my family and my friends and, you know, politics going on in South Asia. Um, but also this just more, you know, personal interest in, um, um, you know, how can these two traditions that, to, again, to my novice eyes looked so different from the outside, um, nevertheless have this philosophical tradition, this, this uh, poetic tradition that cross-fertilized so much and, and, and that to my eyes looked so similar to one another. Um, so then I started taking up Arabic. Um, I got a few years of Arabic under my belt as an undergrad um, and then took up Persian later on. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, as I think is so true for many of us, uh, it was just the accidents of the professors and teachers and advisors and mentors who were around us um, uh, at Harvard. I was you know, just blessed to be surrounded by so many great scholars of both Sanskrit, you know, Hinduism and, and Buddhism on the one hand, and also Islamic studies, Islamic philosophy. You know, I took courses with Rob Wisnowski, with uh, Khaled Odoweheb, Ali Asani, James Morris was nearby, Sunil Sharma was nearby. I could study with them um, for Hinduism. Uh, Parimal Pato, Anmonius, uh, Francis Clooney, Larry McRae. Um, and then just, you know, the generosity of, of so many scholars uh, beyond. Um, um, Carl Ernst was, you know, a great, a resource for me, um, even though I never took a class with him, he, he gave me so much. Um, Jack Hawley at Columbia, um, 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 William Chittick, um, and, and Sachiko Murata at Stony Brook. Um, so, you know, all these people I could consult. Um, you know, there was no one person in that team who um, had the scope to, you know, know all sides and all corners of my project. Um, but they all just had a kind of uh, spirit of, of um, you know, letting me explore and, 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 and um, letting me do things on my own to a certain extent that I was able to sort of piece together the um, uh, guidance I needed to, to do this project. Um, maybe I'm going on too long, but um, 
just the last little bit that, that sort of made this book possible. Uh, as an undergrad, I'd actually encountered just a footnote in some book um, that mentioned that uh, Mir Fintodeschi's uh, um, sort of uh, concise translation of the Lovio book. There was a Harvard dissertation done on this in the 70s. Um, and uh, because I was at Harvard and you know, it was all, uh, nothing was electronic, it was all on paper, I, I had access to that. So I, you know, I checked out that dissertation, I photocopied it, didn't know any Persian, so I couldn't really do anything with it. But I just made a mental note to you know, come back to this someday, learn Persian and come back to this someday. And um, that became the seed of, of this book. Um, I started my PhD thinking I was going to do a dissertation just on what is now the Finderiski portion of this book, just, just that one little chapter. Um, but I became fascinated with uh, Mother Sudhana Saraswati and um, the whole Love Yoga of our sister tradition and Mohibbala Lahabadi, just, you know, became interested in these people along the way. And uh, Parimal Patil, one of my advisors, my main advisor, uh, he just sat with me one day and he said, why don't you try to do all of them? See, see if it can work. You know, try, try, try to put them all in the dissertation. Why not? Um, you know, go, go take a week, see, see if you can make sense of it. Maybe we could do that. So, you know, in the course of one conversation, the size of the dissertation basically tripled in scope. <laughs> um, and it, it, it was a bit of a ridiculous undertaking. Um, but uh, I'm glad I did it. And um, that dissertation, of course, became the basis for this book. Terrific. Uh, well, you've already begun to introduce your book a bit, uh, but I think perhaps for the benefit of our listeners, let's begin with sort of a broad sort of question of uh, what this book is about. And, you know, this is true for every book, I guess, um, in that, uh, you know, reading the author's logic from beginning to the end is very useful as a reader. But I think especially, especially with this book, uh, I would highly recommend all readers to go through the whole book uh, and its own logic of how you present it, because it's a very difficult project, and I, you really execute it quite masterfully. I think it's an incredible achievement in, in many ways. Anyways, let's let's begin with uh, the general thrust of the book. So it is about the translation of a Sanskrit treatise in early modern South Asia, Lagu Yoga Vasishta, and its Persian translation. And uh, 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 say a bit more uh, to our listeners, A, about what kind of a text this is, and its Persian translation. So sort of introduce your book a bit. And the other thing, if you could add to that, uh, you know, in the beginning chapters of the book, you make a very good point about how in the study of South Asian religions, um, there has been a push to to, to critique uh, nationalist historiographies in the early modern period. And, and you uh, situate yourself in that tradition of, you know, critiquing nationalist historiographies. But in, in this kind of critique, perhaps you say at one point, I, I don't have the page number marked right now, but you say at one point that perhaps you've gone too far to the point of not taking religion and metaphysics that seriously in terms of the philosophical, metaphysical uh, 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 motives of these translators and authors and so on. In some ways, if I could paraphrase you, we've tried to de-religionize the early modern uh, uh, past uh, in trying to confront the, the monstrosities of you know, modern contemporary nationalism and so on. So if we could add that theoretical political dimension also when you introduce your book a bit. Sure, certainly, certainly. Um, and thank you. That, that, those comments are very kind. Um, so yes, uh, just to start to introduce the texts, uh, first of all. Uh, so yes, the Lagu Yoga Vasishta, um, a Sanskrit treatise, uh, it has its origins in um, likely 9th century Kashmir. Um, uh, Two German scholars, uh, two scholars uh, based in Germany, Walter Slahe and Jürgen Hanneder, have, have led, a, for over a decade now, they've, they've led a, 
a team of scholars um, who have just done really, really tremendous work um, um, reconstructing the very, very complicated textual history of this text. Uh, but it starts off in, in, in Kashmir, a text known as the Mokshopaya, um, which was um, kind of a renegade text. It, 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 it was dis- decisively non-Brahminical, in fact, explicitly critical of, of, of Brahminical authority, um, you know, Vedic authority, things like this, um, and, and basically made this broad claim, you know, even a child can read this text, they can just think, they can inquire right. philosophically and uh, arrive at the truth. You don't need authority, you don't need uh, um, 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 uh, uh, scripture, etc., etc. Um, uh, so, you know, throwing wide open the, the gates for uh, liberation uh, to, to, to anybody who can think. Um, once this text, uh, especially when it leaves Kashmir, uh, this text starts to be domesticated by different forms of, of sort of more conventional Brahminical uh, authority. Um, by the early modern period, it's a text that's um, uh, been claimed by numerous sects, numerous groups, um, but probably the most prominent group to appropriate it is the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, um, um, which has now claimed this text as, as one of its own. Muslims were no exception to this huge, huge popularity of the text, and really it was huge. I mean, North India to South India, we have you know, Vaishnavas, Shaivas, all sorts of groups who normally don't agree on you know, which text is most authoritative. Um, they all seem to love this text, uh, the Yoga Vasishtha, and its shorter version, the Lagu Yoga Vasishtha. Um, the Muslims of the Mughal Empire were, were no exception at all. They, they really loved this text. They patronized numerous complete translations. You can find all sorts of, of partial retellings, uh, Persian texts written by Muslims that are inspired clearly by the Yoga Vasishtha. We have Hindavi retellings of it. Um, Bedil does retellings of Yoga Vasishtha stories in, in Persian. Um, this text had a vibrant, vibrant uh, life within, in Muslim hands, both within the context of, of the courts and sort of imperial patronage, and very much so also outside of the courts. Um, and it's that latter one that, that scholarship has, has just barely begun to explore. Um, so uh, the particular Persian translation of the Lagu Yoga Vasishta that I deal with in the book is, is one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest. It's a complete translation, um, um, uh, patronized uh, uh, just at the very end of Akbar's reign, uh, reign uh, finished in 1597. Um, and a Persian scholar, um, Nizamuddin um was charged to collaborate with two Hindu Sanskrit pandits, uh, Jagannatha Mishra Banarasi and Patan Mishra Jajapuri, to complete this translation. Um, and, you know, I've looked at a lot of Persian translations of Sanskrit texts over the years, and this one remains one of my favorites. It's just, it's really, really fascinating and wonderful uh, what these three scholars managed to accomplish. Um, and I just really begin to scratch the surface in this book. Believe it or not, I ran out of space. There, there was so much more I wanted to say. Um, but I guess that'll have to wait for the next book. Um, so... Um, Mughal studies, especially you know, uh, especially especially when it comes to South Asian Islam, the problem is not so acute um, in the world of Hindu studies, but really for South Asian Islam, I'll focus on that now. Um, I don't know. I, I, I hope I'm not being a little bit unfair to the field when I say there's there's, there's a little bit of uh, uh, an overemphasis on imperial personalities. Um, we really love our rulers. We're we're, we're, we're captivated by Akbar. We're captivated by Aurangzeb for different reasons. Um, you know, there's so many uh, histories of 
a king or a prince or, or what have you. And, and that's bled over into the ways that these sorts of translations um, have been discussed in modern scholarship. Um, the majority of, of, of analysis that we find is, is talking about the um, imperial motivations, right? You know, the imperial, um, what does the empire get? out of um, translating these sorts of things. And I'm not meaning to criticize all of that, any, any of that, but um, it's, it's very, very insightful stuff and um, um, uh, hugely important for that critique of nationalist historiography that I'll come back to in a second. Um, but uh, what I was interested in is, you know, these, these, these smaller forgotten voices that, that um, scholarship doesn't often try to recapture. And it was my main conundrum in the book. So I have these three translators, Panikriti, the two um, um, uh, Sanskrit pundits, um, and I know basically nothing about them. I, I come through texts, I come through archives. What do you do? These are the uh, you know direct hands that produce this translation. Um, it would make sense to start with them. You know, learn something about them if you want to understand something about this translation. But what do you do when you're able to uncover precious little about them? I, I barely know more than their names, um, frankly. Um, so I tried to devise a methodology for, um, on the one hand, trying to, you know, glean insights from the texture of their text itself. Um, difficult for Panipati, especially difficult for, in the case of the two Sanskrit pundits, because, um, uh, you know, the final product is Persian, which is presumably done by Panipati, uh, the two uh, pundits. I don't have any, I don't have a single direct word of theirs. I just have to look for their fingerprints in the final Persian text. Um, to try to reconstruct something about them. And then otherwise what I try to do is I, I try to contextualize the Persian translation within the, the broader philosophical and theological uh, um, events of the day, so to speak. And the argument that I try to make is that um, these three scholars who collaborated on this translation were somehow pulling from um, broader conversations in the world of Arabic philosophy and theology, Persian philosophy and theology, Sanskrit philosophy and theology. They were learned in these different uh, um, um, uh, knowledge disciplines, and they brought those insights to bear on how they translated this text. So basically, I was trying to step away from, um, you know, what are the political uh, um, motivations or uh, intentions of the, 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 the ruler or the prince who's patronizing the text, but step away from that. And think about, you know, uh, what these translators are up to. Maybe they're in, in it just for the paycheck. Sure. And I'm open to that. Um, but I think that there's real philosophical thinking going on. Um, it, the way that they figured out a way to translate uh, a, a given Hindu philosophical concept, a given Hindu conception of God or ritual into Persian Islamic vocabulary. Uh, there's an instance of, of philosophical or theological thinking going on there. And I tried to reconstruct things at that angle. Um, so coming back now to the question of nationalist historiography, uh, if I may. Um, right. So uh, um, the field has um, rightly uh, critiqued very facile, often ahistorical um uh, identity politics laden iterations of Hinduism, Islam. Um, of course, you know, we're all well aware, and just turn on the news uh, of these um, facile iterations of these identities that are projected going back centuries, time immemorial, as you know, being um, uh, at each other's throats, uh, completely irreconcilable. Um, 
uh, I'm completely on board with that critique. And these are uh, uh, foolish, <laughs> foolish iterations of, of, uh, of um, uh, these identities. Um, but the field has also been calling for, um, you know, sort of uh, looking at historical voices, historical texts, historical phenomena in ways that are sensitive to, um, to, to those times, to those places, in ways that are denuded from uh, projections of modern categories back into the past um, to reconstruct you know, these people in their own terms. And I think the field has been largely successful in doing so. But uh, as you mentioned, I think it's, it's, it's missed out, tended to miss out on uh, certain varieties of motivations. Right? So there are very quotidian motivations, right? A lot of uh, scholarship, for example, on Hindus and Muslims um, who co-inhabit a given village or a given town, right? Everyday life and the way that labels of Hindu or Muslim just don't really work or, or, or dra dramatically oversimplify things, right? Um, uh, there's been a lot of scholarship that said, hey, it's not really about a religious identity. It's more just about politics. It's more about power. It's more about uh, uh, economics, right? Uh, and these are all um, um, spot on. But I think in the mix, we've missed out on um, uh, certain other varieties of motivation, which I would characterize as a kind of, you know, philosophical or theological search for truth. Um, um, there are thinkers uh, involved in these Hindu-Muslim cross-fertilizations who are um, deeply invested in things like liberation, salvation, um, um, transcendent truth or reality. Uh, knowing that transcendent reality, something like that, um, we can reconstruct um, uh, "quote unquote" indigenous, right, historical iterations of these sorts of things, um, and I would argue they do turn out to be very different than what we hear modern South Asian Hindu and Muslim political nationalist voices uh, saying nowadays. Um, um, so the critique uh, of national historiography stands, but I'm trying to bring these new um, elements and these new angles um, into what scholarship does. Terrific. Uh, Shankar, for the next question, you know, I'll do something slightly different with your book. Uh, usually we go sort of chapter by chapter, but I think in this case, it might be useful actually um, to 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 say, uh, talk a bit more about the the specific themes of this uh, of this text and how then it gets translated into into the Persian translation. You make a point throughout the book that you are focusing on the the metaphysical aspects of uh, this text and then its translation. And you made a very interesting point in the, uh, in your last substantive chapter, chapter five, where you say, and you've by this point you've de demonstrated it quite successfully, that what we find in this translation movement is something much beyond just the meeting of. Advaita Vedanta and Sufism, that there is something, there are a confluence, this is the, the title of your chapter, a confluence of different traditions uh, that, that go into this, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this uh, interaction between these two, uh, what you call jet streams of, uh, of intellectual uh, sort of uh, traditions. So I was wondering, and this is a sort of a maybe unfair question because there is such detail in this, in this book in terms of the translations and so on. But if you were to pick one or two key themes of um, of this text and then how it gets translated, just so that uh, the listeners get a bit more of a flavor of what this text is about and what are some of the a couple of key themes and what comes about in the in the Persian translation. So maybe introducing the text a little more mm -hmm. and the translation project for for the listeners. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yes, uh, great question. Uh, a little bit unfair, but 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 <laughs> I understand where it's coming from. <laughs> um, 
So yes, the, uh, the, the, the original Sanskrit text, uh, it, it's really wonderful. And, and I have a paragraph in there where I'm basically apologizing for, for, for utterly failing to do justice to it. And I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate that here. It is a fascinating, wonderful, wonderful text. Um, so what the text basically does is, uh, right, so um, um, the young Prince Rama, the, the same Rama who is the hero of the Ramayana, um, for the Lagri uh, Yoga um a young Prince Rama suddenly becomes disillusioned with, with the world. He loses all taste for it. Um, he wants nothing to do with his kingly duties. He wants nothing to do with, with being a prince or a king um, and uh, sort of sits uh, despondent, um, which, which deeply worries his father. Um, a bunch of events uh, uh, ensue. Uh, eventually, Rama ends up having a long conversation with the famous Hindu sage, uh, Rishi Vasishta. And Vasishta, through uh, six chapters, basically takes Rama through uh, successive levels of, of, of progressively deeper uh, philosophical teaching. Now, when I say philosophical, uh, I don't mean philosophical in the um, um, very technical, syllogistic uh, uh, sense. That's not what this text does. It's, it's, a, it's a much more popular text. It's kind of doing a, a narrative philosophy, if you put it that way, a literary philosophy. Um, and what Vasishta basically does is he gives some kind of didactic teaching, um, just you know, laying out uh, some kind of teaching, some kind of, 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 of truth. Um, and then Rama, excuse me, Vasishta will illustrate that teaching with some kind of parable or some kind of story or some kind of allegory. Uh, and the, the stories are often um, very, very fun. Uh, I translate one of them at the end of uh, chapter one, um, which, uh, I mean, it, it's comedic. I mean, it's almost absurd. Um, these, it's a story of three princes um, who are uh, going along encountering all of these utterly nonsensical, self-contradictory things, you know, um, uh, a, a, a house without walls, you know, these sorts of things. Um, uh, an egg that's not an egg, whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, the stories um, amplify and, and, you know, in a literary way, um, dramatically try to paint um, um, the, the philosophical teachings. Uh, so a number of the texts uh, where we have Muslims receiving and kind of riffing on the Lekhi uh, Yoga they, they they pick up on the stories. They pick up on the stories and they, they amplify them, they retell them, um, they have fun with them. Um, and um, I should add, uh, this angle on it, it also makes very good sense why um, Mughal royalty would be very interested in a text like this, because it's kind of a, you know, um, um, a mirror for princes kind of genre, arguably, right? It can be read and used in that way. Here's this young prince trying to come to grips with his um, uh, spiritual aspirations on the one hand and his uh, duties to the world on the other hand. And Vasishta ultimately leads Rama down the path where he attains this knowledge that grants Rama moksha, liberation from the world, but it's a, nevertheless a moksha that takes place while still living in the world. Right? Vasishta's last teaching to Rama is, um, you know, go back to your, your princely duties. You have to be a king. That's what you were born to be. You don't, you don't flout those duties. You don't go off and become an ascetic renunciant. Right? You be a king. There's a way to be a king while still being rooted in this knowledge that liberates you from the world. Um, again, true, true to my intervention, uh, what caught my eye was, yes, so there are a number of Muslim appropriations of the Yogavasistra that, that go in these sorts of directions. Right? It's about the delightful stories, relishing the delightful stories. It's about the mirror for princes' sort of wisdom. Um, what interested, interested me about um, some of the more uh, philosophically oriented characters 
someone like Mayor Fenderiski, um, they take all the stories out of it. <laughs> they take the stories out of it. Uh, they're interested in the sort of uh, the more didactic portions um, um, in, in Fenderiski's uh, condensed uh, edition of the text. He sort of he took Panipati's translation and stitched together his own condensed version of it. He just keeps in there the passages on uh, metaphysics, the passages on epistemology, the passages on soteriology. Um, he even keeps in there you know, things about reincarnation, uh, karma, things like that. Um, he's interested in questions of um, right, metaphysical truth, how we know the truth, and how we uh, become liberated or, or, or saved by this truth. Um, uh, so that gets at the first part of the question. Could you remind me of the second part? In the sense that, uh, you know, uh, what kinds of uh, translation choices or ambiguities that mm. you draw in terms of how it gets translated into the whole Vijudi, the, 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 the multiple confluence of traditions yes, that right, you see in the right. book. That, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, thanks for reminding me. Um, so, yes, um, um, for the sake of space, really, uh, I ended up just focusing on, on metaphysics. Uh, I could have done a similar study with the passages on epistemology. I could have done a similar study with the passages on yoga, for instance. There's a lot of yoga. Uh, in, in yoga lasista and different yoga techniques and um, postures and breathing exercises, things like that. Um, um, I, I chose metaphysics uh, for this book. Um, and yes, uh, we often find a kind of you know, shorthand way of talking about these sorts of encounters as a kind of Sufi Vedanta encounter, a Sufi Vedanta encounter. Um, but uh, the details of this text, at least, um, um, really resist that kind of, of, of simple characterization of it. The Logo Yoga Vasishta itself is a, a, a profoundly complicated uh, synthetic text. Um, the original Sanskrit text itself, um, there's uh, an inheritance from uh, Kashmiri Shaiva traditions. There's an inheritance from uh, different Buddhist traditions, especially uh, Yogacara Buddhism. Um, Upanishadic wisdom, um, uh, different varieties of Vedanta, right? The Advaita Vedanta that we think of as associated with Shankara is just one kind of Vedanta. There's different kinds of Vedanta uh, in uh, the uh, Sanskrit Lagu Yoga Vasishta. Yoga, a bit of an inheritance from Sankhya philosophy. Um, so it synthesizes all of these things in a really, really unique uh, way um, that uh, there's just no other extant uh, Sanskrit textual tradition that, that, that that's like it. Um, the Yoga Vasishta is really its own tradition unto itself in this way. Similarly, on the uh, Muslim side, um, there are very complicated things going on, e even in the text itself. Uh, so Nizamdin Panipati, Panipati the, the Muslim translator of the text, uh, he clearly favored a, a Wahid al-Wujud kind of vocabulary in the tradition. Of, right, the way Ibn Arabi has been received through the likes of uh, Kunawi, Qaisari, Kashani, Jami, right, that particular um, strand of interpreting Ibn Arabi. But there are loads of competing interpretations of Ibn Arabi that, that are also out there and um, um, haven't been to, uh, sufficiently captured in, in, in modern scholarship. Um, um, so uh, it's, uh, what I try to do in the book is to single out the, the particular tradition of interpreting Ibn Arabi that um, um, these scholars end up using. Um, from Kunawi on, right? Kunawi is, is, is Ibn Arabi's direct student. Um, uh, Kunawi himself is up to something very different than Ibn Arabi is. From, from, from that time forward, um, after Kunawi's uh, work, 
um, there's a, a, a philosophical sort of scholastic strand of uh, writing in the Ibn Arabi tradition that has um, sort of merged, uh, not merged, um, but has, has sort of uh, brought Ibn Arabi into the language of peripatetic Masha'i philosophy, right? resorting now to the language of, of Ibn Sina, but kind of revisioning it. Um, so this, uh, now you have to suddenly reference the peripatetic Masha'i world as well. Mir Fendriski is a, an interpreter of the Rabbi who's who's much more deeply steeped in that tradition than he is in someone like Ibn Arabi. Um, it's it's uh, probably the chapter of the book that um, um, uh, suffers the most um, from from not being long enough. Um, but it's it, it's it's very fascinating the way that Mirkandrewski tries to peripateticize, if I may, the Lovely of Avasishka. Um, not only translating it in the terms of Avicenna, but even going back further and and sometimes saying. Uh, you know, Avicenna doesn't quite have it right here. You really have to go back to Aristotle or Plato um, for the right vocabulary to capture what's going back here. Um, uh, it's, of course, a complicated question, you know, the, 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 the manner of Muslim scholars' access to Plato and Aristotle, but I'll, I'll sidestep that for the moment. Um, so, right, Tinderiski will sometimes take just one uh, Sanskrit word, a word like manas, usually we translate it as mind, and in his commentary, he will offer uh, six different definitions for it. One of those definitions might be um, mirroring uh, kind of Ibn Arabi, Waqil al-Wujud kind of vocabulary. But then there'll be three others that are referencing um, Aristotle, perhaps, or referencing Ibn Sina, Avicenna, perhaps. Um, there'll be another one that is referencing just a kind of more general Sufism, right? a language of sort of than a, you know, annihilation in God, something like that, rather than anything particularly uh, uh, um, Ibn Arabi, uh, um, so, right, there's this very, very complex melange as well on the um, Muslim side. Um, so basically, uh, what I try to uh, illustrate as effectively as I can in the book is that on, quote-unquote, both sides of this process, right, the Hindu-Sanskritic world on the one hand, and then the Muslim-Arabo-Persian world on the other hand, there's, um, you know, these two traditions are so old by this point. It's quite different from the uh, Greco-Arabica, Greek-Arabic translation movement in this way. By the time we're talking about the 1600s, early modern period, um, these Arabo-Persian Muslim traditions and these Sanskritic Hindu traditions are so old. There are so many schools. There's been so much debate. The traditions are so well-established and they're so weighty. Right, that there's just so much to deal with there. Um, that there's this very, very complex melange of different um, disciplines, schools, thought systems to draw upon um, uh, in trying to craft this conversation you know, between Sanskrit and, 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 and Arabic Persian. Um, and uh, just through this one little theme of metaphysics, and, and really just a small slice of the metaphysics in the Logio Gavasashto, I try to show how these very, very, very complex um, um, traditions come together uh, through the, the, the hands of these three translators. Another key theme of the book that really struck me, and that actually runs through a, a couple of the chapters, especially the chapter on Muhibullah uh, Ilahabadi, but even the one before that, uh, dealing with Madhusudana Saraswati, is that you really um, uh, move beyond 
looking at this early modern period either through the lens of rigid orthodoxy or universal tolerance. That's the kind of binary that you really uh, puncture, uh, especially when you talk about this whole doctrine of Bhadrat al-Wajud, of seeing it as some kind of a litmus test on tolerance or on hospitality or capaciousness towards the religious other or the Hindu other in this case. And those who were on, you know, critiqued this concept were somehow banner bearers of rigid orthodoxy and so on. And you really make it a great point that, you know, Vadas uh, al-Wajud actually does not have to be the opposite of uh, quote-unquote legal orthodoxy and so on. But tell us a bit about that argument. It's such a pre argument. Uh, tell us a bit about that that point that you make. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, uh, it, it works on both sides of, of what you brought up. Um, you know, I have my own version of the argument for Madhusudmana. Um, I can come back to that if you want, but you know, for the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast, I'll, I'll focus on Mohibullah. Um, happy to go back to Mansudna if you want me to later. But yeah, with Mohibullah, um, yeah, I, I think we've we've seen the field uh, struggle with this. Uh, I, I point out just a few examples in uh, in the book, um, but uh, you know, going back to Fazlur Rahman, for instance, um, you know, he he. He, he struggles to see it. He, he, he thinks that it's a, it's a natural implication of Watib al-Wujud that, of course, it completely undermines any kind of standard of good and bad, right and wrong, right? Everything is one. Everything just kind of collapses into this, this, this you know, goofy, fluffy oneness. Um, uh, you know, despite what some Watib al-Wujud thinkers may say, well, you know, of course it's heterodox. Of course it doesn't take law seriously. Of course, it doesn't take things like religious exclusivism um, um, or, or abrogation seriously. Um, you see later scholars, you know, these little comments that keep coming out in scholarship. Whenever there's a, 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 a um, fervently Ibn Arabi supporting uh, an Indian thinker or poet um, who ends up uh, be also being a kind of you know Muslim supremacist, uh, you know, Islam abrogates other traditions. Uh, you see these little comments all the time. Oh, I mean, this thinker is just being sort of uh, inconsistent here, right? Or you, you'll see a comment that, that says, um, you know, oh, he kind of let his sort of Muslim pious fervor get the better of him here. Um, so uh, there have been, I think, minor correctives over the years, but I think we still have this uh, prevailing sense in the field that, uh, yeah, the natural implication of what's able to do is that you're tolerant, is that you're, um, you know, not really interested in things like law, you're not really interested in differences between religions, it all just sort of merges into this oneness. Um, this just does not bear out with the historical record at all. <laughs> um, and I'm uncomfortable with, uh, you know, just seeing time and time again, Wathabu um, Wajud uh, thinker who, who really, really insists um, that there, there is no knowledge without the law. There, there, you know, there, there, there is no possibility of salvation unless you... Uh, stay true to the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad in all its specificity for your entire life, right? There's no stepping outside of that. Um, I'm uncomfortable with just uh, you know seeing this again and again and again and, and saying, oh, they're just being inconsistent thinkers here. You know, these are smart people. Um, so um, um, I try to tease out, especially with Mahibullah, the kind of internal logic of why difference really makes sense of why for Mohibullah, his metaphysics, his conception of the human being, it doesn't amount to just this simplistic, everything is one, all distinctions disappear. Um, if you, you know, look carefully at uh, Mohibullah's metaphysics, I would say the same thing for Ibn Arabi. 
uh, William Chittick, in fact, uses this phrase, um, so I'm paraphrasing him here. But um, you know, difference is just about as real as, as, as oneness, right? The roots of distinction and difference and, and, and hierarchy are implicit in uh, the divine reality, the divine wujud, the divine being itself. Um, and, and so difference is very, very, very real. And it's not a simplistic sort of um, overlooking uh, of difference in the name of this kind of, of oneness. And so it shouldn't be a contradiction at all uh, for there to be Wata Wujud thinkers who uh, are really exclusively interested in Islam and really aren't, aren't interested in any kind of tolerance and any kind of uh, um, you know, unity with, with the, the Muslim other or, or something like that. Um, it should equally be unsurprising when you find Wata Wujud thinkers who, who do uh, follow that line. Right? People can emphasize things and interpret things uh, as they want to. Um, so with Muhibbullah, um, uh, yeah, I spent, I spent a lot of time uh, in the book um, trying to just sort of uh, uh, tease out how starting from his metaphysics um, and the related question of, of, of what the human being is, um, there's a, a, a very uh, consistent sort of internal logic for why difference is very real um, for why things like good and bad are very real and can't simply be washed away in, in this vision of oneness, and how it's uh, the implication is it's very, very, very important to um, follow your sharia, to follow your law, to follow your prophet. Other traditions have other prophets. Other traditions have their own law. Um, Mohibullah's, uh, one of his go-to metaphors is, is that, uh, you know, every person and every community has its own Mohibullah, right? So if I'm standing over here in North America, my Qibla points in a particular direction. If you're standing somewhere else, your Qibla points in, a, in another direction, right? From here in North America, it makes no sense to follow that other person's Qibla. You'll be going the wrong direction if you do that, right? So difference matters. Um, uh, from where you are, from where you're situated, from the community that you're in, uh, God has provided a path to you back to the center, back to the reality, capital R, um, and you should follow it. And it's distinct to you. And um, um, uh, it's right for you, and, and uh, other people's paths are not right for you, right? in anything more than maybe an accidental kind of happenstance way. So uh, I think one often finds in modern scholarship a kind of wonder and inability to comprehend, um, you know, why didn't this conversation happen earlier? Why didn't this conversation between Hindus and Muslims be, be more common than it in fact is? Reconstructing Mohibullah's logic, I think it makes good sense. Right? He, he thinks that his, uh, in that logic that I just laid out, um, I have my path, Muslims have their path back to God, it's been provided in our scripture and uh, in our sharia and, and in the example of our prophet. We just need to follow that. And, and that, can, that in itself contains everything of ultimate value to us. Again, metaphysics, truth, the path to no truth, the path to be to be to be liberated uh, to to achieve salvation or liberation or annihilation, fana, what have you, um, and that's a lot to deal with, right? Again, we're talking about a set, a, a centuries old tradition here. There's a lot on Mahibullah's plate just to um, address his own tradition. Again, there's a kind of natural, you know, internal logic there. It's it's not at all surprising when you put in that way why Mahibullah would spend his whole career in India, um, you know, certainly surrounded by uh, Hindu scholars, Sanskrit scholars, what have you, and never really be interested in, in studying it. 
Um, I, I often draw the comparison I, in, in the book. I draw the comparison with uh, you know a modern university. Um, you know, scholars may look back at, at, at us uh, a century from now and say, you know, how come those religious studies people weren't talking with their colleagues in, in economics? Right? They were just two buildings over. They were using the same library. Why, why weren't they having those conversations? Um, for us, it's, it's not surprising, right? We, we have this fulsome, uh, huge uh, 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 discipline that we're a part of, um, you know, religious studies or area studies, what have you. Uh, it's really hard to have a high-level conversation with uh, an economist, right? The, the kind of effort that would go into just finding a vocabulary to have that conversation is huge, right? Um, and by the way, we're also not institutionally rewarded for it, right? So um, uh, from that angle, it's not surprising why, why such conversations rarely happen. I, I, I apply a similar logic um, to, to, to these historical figures from the early modern period. Um, thinks, excuse me, Mohibullah thinks his tradition provides everything that's truly needful. Um, there's plenty of uh, re- resources in principle for making sense of a Hindu other, a Christian other, a Jewish other, what have you. But Mohibullah himself never actually does it, right? Even though he lives in India and he's surrounded by non-Muslim uh, uh, traditions. Um, he sticks to his own discipline. And um, uh, so the book is kind of, uh, for a number of these thinkers, uh, on the one hand, it tries to reconstruct the usually pretty limited ways in which these great thinkers in their traditions do engage the other. But a lot of the book is also spent, as you alluded to, with trying to tease out why they did not engage the other. And there's very good reasons for, for why they do that, that I think are very internally consistent. Now, uh, picking up on something that you were saying, I do want to spend a little time on uh, the towards the end of your book, you have a very fascinating discussion on, uh, uh, if I could paraphrase you in some ways, how to take these kinds of actors, uh, both the translation team uh, that you examine and also then these other scholars uh, who were part of that same context or who engaged with this text and so on, how to take them seriously as theorists of religion or to take them as not just as data to be theorized, but as properly theoretical in their own right and the kind of uncomfortable relationship of religious studies as a field with theology and metaphysics and so on. Um, tell us about that argument. Uh, what kind of an intervention do you make in terms of the suggestion of how this translation project can be seen as part of uh, uh, methods and theories in religious studies? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's barely an argument. It's the beginnings of an argument, I think. Um, but... Uh, um, I, I felt it was important to, to, to put that in there just to um, suggest some broader implications beyond history. Um, uh, so, yeah, this, the, the phrase that you used, you know, um, um, you know t- taking these thinkers seriously, um, it, it's a phrase, uh, you know, I, I do it in the book. You just look back at the, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, um, just look back at the jar for decades. We see this phrase being thrown out all the time, um, and I, I don't know how much direction it's, it's, it's been given. Um, you know, t- uh, there's a clear heightened awareness in this day and age more, more, more than any other, I would say, um, that um, you know, the, the Euro-American canon of, of religious studies theory and method that we usually resort to, like the usual intro to religious studies syllabus, you, you go through the great thinkers, and you know, that, that's a very specific Euro-American 
one would often add a, a white male canon um, that's deeply implicated in um, Orientalism or imperialism or, or what have you. Um, there's a, a very clear sense in the field that um, that that's a very provincial uh, 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 scope. Right? Um, uh, and there's a lot of goodwill in religious studies to try to expand the canon, quote-unquote, further. Um, so it, for decades now, we've seen panels, we've seen publications, we've seen roundtables um, pondering this idea of, of how to take the quote-unquote other seriously. Right? Is there uh, some way where um, Hindu thought or Christian thought or um, uh, Native American thought, uh, African thought, can be taken seriously, not just as the data of religious studies, but as the actual theory of religious studies. Um, and we all know that the very birth of religious studies as a discipline is uh, to distinguish itself from theology, right? And theologians do one thing, the origin of religious studies says, you know, we do the secular scientific uh, quote-unquote objective study of religion. Uh, thankfully, that language has, of course, been very, very critiqued um, um, for decades now, but um, the pieces haven't quite settled. Um, some of the religious studies is, uh, is friendly with theology. A lot of religious studies remains um, very wary of theology and, and wanting to maintain a pretty firm distinction. And then there's, of course, a very facile ways in which everything that doesn't come from the Euro-American Euro canon, uh, quote-unquote, is immediately suspected of being just theology. Right? Um, oh, that, that sort of faith and confessional. And people, uh, you know, often that's assumed before the stuff is even looked at. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to question a lot of that. And what I basically try to do is, um, so, okay, there's been a lot of examples, some of them quite successful, um, but there's been a lot of examples of figures, uh, scholars nowadays, trying to take a given Buddhist philosopher or a given uh, uh, you know, Neo-Confucian uh, theorizer of ritual and, and tries to use it as theory. There, there, there are a number of really good books out there that, that, that try to do that. Um, and they've had a limited life in religious studies, and you know we'll, we'll see what happens. But what I thought to do with the book is, what I'm studying in this book is not just a given thinker, a given philosopher, but I'm actually studying the process by which a group of thinkers from different traditions, um, whose scholastic disciplines did not grow up together, right? They, they, they've been you know, Islamic philosophy and theology and Hindu philosophy and theology, um, you know, they, they sort of became crystallized and took their basic form in isolation from one another. Um, so there's no historical uh, cross-fertilization there. What I'm studying in the book is the way that um, um, thinkers in these two traditions found a way to craft a conversation. Right? In, in a certain way, I'm wondering if, if, if they actually did, what, what I'm studying is them actually doing what religious studies has been pondering for decades now. How can we craft a conversation with um, other traditions, other thinkers from other traditions? And I, I basically think about in that closing part of the book what lessons there might be for us um, in religious studies. Right? Maybe we can learn from the example of how they crafted their conversation to figure out how we can craft ours. Uh, one of the first things that immediately, one of the first contrasts that immediately jumped out to my mind where do these thinkers start? Right, Panipati, uh, Jagannatha, Mishra Banasi, and Pitamisha Dajipuri, where did they start? They start with metaphysics. Right? That was uh, what occupied most of their effort. That's what interested them the most. Um, 
uh, Hindus have, the, the, or the Love Yoga Vasishta has its own vocabulary, its own concepts, its own way of conceptualizing reality, metaphysical reality. Um, Persian, Arabic, Islamic thought has its, uh, its own versions also. We have to start there. That's where we have to figure out the translation first. How do the core features of the Love Yoga Vasishta's metaphysics, how can that make sense um, in and to uh, Islamic, Arabic, and Persian thought? Um, and, and, and vocabulary. That's not what we're doing <laughs> in religious studies today. Um, uh, you know, we don't do a lot of metaphysics. To, uh, I, I don't think that's controversial. Uh, I think a lot of religious studies thinks that metaphysics is uninteresting. I think a lot of religious studies thinks that metaphysics has no place in religious studies. And again, that's theology or something like that. Um, um, you know, the quote-unquote linguistic term, whatever the heck that means, uh, um, it, it's kind of uh, pushed aside. Uh, that kind of inquiry uh, tends to think that that's misguided. Instead, we tend to think in terms of uh, uh, cultural construction. Right? Um, so let's put aside truth claims. Let's, let's put aside whether any given culture's way of talking about the world is true or not, is accurate or not. Let's put that aside. And instead, we can just appreciate these things as sort of cultural worlds, right? Um, that's the way that that society, um, 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 for various contextual reasons, came to envision uh, the world. Another culture would do it differently. And let's put truth claims aside. Um, so basically what I try to press on is uh, if, okay, so we, there's this language out there of, of, of taking the other seriously as thinkers, as theorists. Um, so the first thing that emerges to my mind is, okay, if we want to take these translators seriously as theorists, then we have to take seriously that they think the starting point of this conversation is metaphysics, and not metaphysics in this kind of cultural construction mode, but rather metaphysics as uh, something that actually gives us access to truth. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it flies in the face of a kind of... Um, um, very, very rightly intentioned uh, kind of neoliberal um, um, protection that I think religious studies often tries to offer, right? Uh, trying to distinguish ourselves from the era of imperialism, the kind of uh, just intellectual chauvinism uh, with which Europe could so often say, uh, we are right, or Christianity is right, the whole rest of the world is barbaric or savage or, um, you know, some, some tiny... A developmental stepping stone on the way to uh, what we have, right? We are, we are right to be very wary of that hubris. And so I am myself wary of, of that particular implication, I think, of, of trying to take these translators seriously. But I, I have to say it because, because uh, um, I don't think I'm doing them a service uh, unless I give voice to it. Um, they These translators think that they're capturing the truth, right? the metaphysical truth. Um, and not the truth for them, not the truth for that guy, not the truth for that culture, but, but the truth. Um, and um, A, we're not taking them seriously if, if, if we just um, put them under that neoliberal umbrella of, well, okay, yeah, but we can think of it as just true for you, right? <laughs> That's not taking them seriously. That's not taking them seriously, but, uh, uh, their, their claim. Um, uh, so, uh, again, I'm wary of it. Um, um, a lot of other arenas of academia, I point to philosophy departments in particular, uh, they do engage in metaphysics, and they have been for decades. In fact, uh, you know, one of the most vibrant 
arenas um, of thought in philosophy departments, um, um, even right now. Um, so there are other disciplines we can look to that would say one can inquire into things like metaphysics. It doesn't mean you're theological. It doesn't mean you're confessional. One can do it in a way that um, is you know, sort of publicly legible and, and, and subject to uh, critique and evidence and data and things like that. Um, uh, maybe, you know, we can engage with the other in that way without having this knee-jerk, however unconscious uh, um, uh, judgment that, ah, but it's really all just theology. Um, all three of these thinkers that I, I, I spend time with in the book have particular writings where they're not appealing to a given scripture as their sort of sole base of evidence. Um, they're not appealing to mystery or invisible, uh, this, that, or the other thing. They're making arguments. Right. They're making arguments that anybody who's, yeah. you know, in some way committed to rationality can read, can critique, um, 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 you know, maybe metaphysics to be pursued in that way. But another kind of insight that I have uh, from, from studying these translators and the uh, fig, uh, scholars around them that I, uh, that I bring around them in the book is very interestingly, uh, again, all three of those scholars, Mahidvala, Madhusudana, Nathan Dreesky, uh, they have those quote-unquote, you know, more purely quote-unquote philosophical, syllogistic, argumentative treatises. Um, but when they do engage the other, quote-unquote, um, they tend to do it through an imaginative mode, a literary mode, a poetic mode, right? Nathan um, the majority of his corpus, just to take him as a the majority of his corpus is, it's, it's peripatetic, it's, it's arguments, it's syllogism. Uh, when he picks up the Lugri Yoga he primarily resorts to Persian poetry, Sufi poetry, um, uh, a kind of more imaginative literary language. And so that suggests another possible direction to my mind. Again, if we're trying to take these people seriously as theorists, I don't know how we would do it in the religious studies, um, but for uh, a number of reasons, um, uh, um, these individuals seem to think that a more kind of poetic, literary, imaginative approach is the best way to craft that kind of conversation or that understanding of the other. I don't know how that would look in religious studies, but um, in a very just sort of nascent, uh, um, provocative way, I guess, uh, for us to keep thinking about, what would it mean to take that kind of mode seriously if we're trying to learn from, from these translators? Um, what would a more poetic way of engaging the other look like in religious studies? Yeah, and that, that in some ways is the rare strength of this uh, book in that it is... Uh, masterfully, uh, in terms of its textual analysis, it's really uh, in-depth, masterful, uh, uh, plentiful, but then also there is uh, this incredible theoretical interventions that you make, and to do both of those things together uh, in, in one uh, book is actually quite a, quite a feat, uh, so congratulations. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time, Shankar. Uh, thank you so much for this wonderful book, Translating Wisdom, Hindu-Muslim Intellectual Interactions in Early Modern South Asia, by Professor uh, Shankar Nayars published by the University of California Press in 2020. And this, of course, is also an um, open access uh, book. Um, so thank you so much, Shankar, for your time. I'm really looking forward to all the great debates and uh, uh, conversations that this book is sure to provoke across literally multiple fields. And I think your book really is one of the pioneering studies that has uh, engaged in Hinduism studies, Islamic studies, religious studies, South Asian religions so holistically. Uh, uh, so th uh, congratulations and uh, look forward to learning more from you 
uh, in terms of the conversations this book provokes and of course your future work also. Thanks so much, Ali. Thanks for taking the time and uh, again, very much appreciate your kind comments. So this was my conversation with Professor Shankar Nair about his wonderful and brilliant new book, Translating Wisdom. I hope you liked and appreciated and enjoyed this latest episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Uh, take care, stay well, and keep listening to the New Books Network and New Books in Islamic Studies.